Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we discuss a topic which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis, joining me this week as always is Matt Risby. Hi Matt. Hello. And joining us this week for our topic, which I'm sure is going to be great fun for us and for her, is the public engagement facilitator at the University of Oxford and the overseer of the Oxford Spots podcast. And returning to the show to talk about something that isn't X-Files is Michaela Livingston-Banks. Hi Michaela, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Hello. And what have you been up to in the time since you've last been on? Dreading the return of the X-Files for an 11th season? God, you have no idea. And (laughs) everything that goes out on Instagram and everything and the trailer, which has spoilers in it. And, uh, ah, yeah, that's all I have to say on the matter. Yeah. As someone who didn't hate it quite as much as you, the previous (laughs) revival season, uh, I don't have a great, uh, great anticipation for the show coming back just because whenever they're posting all those pictures now there's just a kind of a sense of obligation to it before it was like oh my god i can't believe we're doing we're doing this again and now it's like oh i can't believe people watched it and now we have to make more of this shit right and i'm like i have to do this again i'm like (laughs) i shouldn't i should save myself the sorrow and the heartache and the anger but i'm i know i'm gonna make myself watch it so uh Oh, yeah. well. Matt's the biggest winner in this because he's hardly watched any X-Files, so he doesn't know mm. the pain and the anger. I've watched uh, season one and two um, about 50 times each, but then I, I tuned <laughs> out like, you know, I'm a kind of X-Files hipster. I like the early stuff. Yeah. Mm. What was, it was the, good. What was the reason for 50 times each? Is it just that's what you had on video? I, I, I recorded them off BBC Two mm. um, on uh, like VHS tapes, and then it moved to Sky, which I didn't have. So um, um, I couldn't then watch it. So uh, I had the first two seasons and I really liked weird stuff. So I watched them over and over again. Um, and then, yeah, just kind of tuned out from there. And then I think I watched an episode and there was like Robert Patrick was in it. And I was like, uh, I don't know what's going on here. So I kind of got <laughs> a bit confused and yeah, tuned out from there on in. Uh, I saw the movie. And now uh, you're smug. Well, it, it, you know, there was literally no forethought on my part, like most things I do. Um, but eventually, <laughs> you know, I've, I've not had to watch you know, what sounds like some dreadful seasons of television. Mm, no, actually, like, the whole thing is okay, but se- season 10, just, no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so they... many shows are really moving into another gear at season 10, are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was, there was like, one really funny episode of Kamel Nanjianian, but then it turned out that was just based on an old script the writer had laying around for a different show i was like okay i can Brilliant. i can see perhaps why this one was a little better than the ones that they had kind of hashed together to revive the series hey you keep saying that's his favorite show in the big sick as well now i am um, some kind of like reflexive meta joke now <laughs> yeah and he did a whole podcast about it which in retrospect looks like it was just his way of trying to get into the revival <laughs> um mm. because as soon as the show uh, he was in it he has not done another episode of that show since but I think that may just be the fact that he's now much too busy. Yeah, yeah. But that's that's neither here nor there, and nothing to do with our topic. So let's let's move on to this week's news, which, uh, as in previous weeks, is dominated by discussions around sexual assault and harassment. Uh, so 
apologies to everyone there will be fun after this but you know <laughs> this part is going to be a little more downbeat the most notable i guess or the, the the one that kind of set off the biggest kind of ripples was the exposure of long known or long suspected i guess accusations against louis ck whose whole career has pretty much imploded in the course of about 48 hours since the new york times published the allegations against him uh which is probably for the best but uh, as someone who has consumed a lot of his work uh is like really uh yeah it's been rough to just kind of think yeah i helped support this guy who apparently is really monstrous and didn't uh, exactly cover himself in glory with his apology which didn't say i'm sorry and also talked about how how admired he is mm, and listed all his current projects that he has um mm. and yeah kind of said yeah how much he was admired by the people and how much he took advantage of the admiration and I think the first time I read that statement, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of pretty, um, like, laying yourself on the line. And then I kind of thought about it and read it again, and I was like, this, is, this isn't even an apology. This is just, like, a statement of how good you are. Mm. And also, like, you know, not even showing any kind of, like, climb down of anything. Like, he admits that it happened, and that is it. He doesn't kind yeah. of say how he feels about it one way or the other. And, and like, you say... As soon as I like, because the, the stories have been there a long time. I didn't hear about them until it was in something came out about the Tignataro show, the one that's on um, Amazon. Is it called One Mississippi? Yeah. And it said that she, he was still listed as an executive producer on that show, even though she said he has nothing to do with it. And they had an episode where it kind of was about him, but not about him, that kind of mm. dealt with issues like a scenario that now we know is played out to be true between Louis C.K. and another female comedian. I kind of heard that and I was kind of like, uh, and this this is like a big learning experience for everyone, is that like I instantly just hoped it wasn't true, which is mm. really awful because like, I was just being selfish because Louis C.K. was my favourite stand-up. Louis C.K.'s mm. made a load of stuff that I really loved and kind of, and, and kind of, I know his um, chewed up stand-up special like backwards and forwards. So I've got it on my iPod and kind of listened to it loads. And... Then you 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 see his statement, kind of confirming it's true, and then you're like, "Well, yes, it's bad that now all this stuff that I used to cherish and hold dear and kind of enjoy is bad, like is is kind of now tainted, and I've lost that." But that's absolutely nothing in comparison to like these victims of these assaults that have suffered for decades, and you know, like it, it puts a lot of things in perspective. And I think mm. that's one of the positive things that's coming out of this is that people are letting, letting go of what they see as theirs and seeing the wider picture, which is that a lot of people you like and a lot of work that you enjoyed is rooted in some kind of awful, awful abuses of power. Mm. And the other thing with his work, I think because he's a stand-up, because he is so central to the work that he makes, he's not like some... A writer who's abstracted you know he's on camera for a lot of this stuff or he is you know you're hearing his voice it does reframe a lot of the stuff where you think oh you know he was talking about how how flawed he was as a human being or talking about his hang-ups and you kind of think uh, maybe he was just laying the groundwork to excuse himself <laughs> like mm -hmm. what seemed what seemed like him being brave or whatever was in fact him uh, particularly Tignataro in particular talked about this the fact that he put out her stand-up album uh, Live which was uh, and she says that now she can't help but wonder if he put that out 
because it insulated him in some ways, saying like, oh, you know, he was being so supportive of me, a female comedian, that he was using that to insulate himself from criticism uh, and from the accusations that were out in the ether and was sort of known about, but no one was talking about it. And anyone who tried to investigate it got shouted down. Mm. And it's interesting as well, seeing on Twitter, especially a lot of other comedy people that you assume are in, uh, you know, must be friends with Louis CK or move in the same circles, like really dislike him. Mm. Um, so like um, seeing like Paul F. Tompkins uh, and um, I, I never say her surname right. Megan Amaram, is that right? Uh, yeah, uh, Amram, yes. Megan Amram, uh, who tweeted the very pithy F-U-C-K um, <laughs> the next day. Um, and Paul F. Tompkins said something along the lines of, he just kind of quoted Louis C.K.'s statement saying, I'm, you know, deeply apologise for this now. I've realised it's affecting me financially, which mm. is kind of accurate because Louis C.K. has, like you say, his career has imploded. He has gone from, you know, having uh, decent relationships at HBO and Fox to having no relationship at HBO and, uh, sorry, uh, FX rather than Fox. Uh, he's been, everything he's done at Netflix has been cancelled. Um, he has lost his what I assume is a sweet paying gig voicing a talking dog in the secret life of pets mm-hmm. too, uh, which, you know, did some pretty good dollar. Um, so I dare say he was kind of very well rec- uh, like um, compensated for that. But yeah, it's interesting to see what, what's going to happen because he has said at the end of his statement, that he's kind of, you know, talks for a living and that's what he does. And now it's time for him to sit back and listen. And if he has been listening, it's everyone hates him and he should just go <laughs> away and leave everyone alone. Mm, yeah. Or he may be replaced with Christopher Plummer, which is the <laughs> the surprise meme of the last week is people talking about various people being replaced with Christopher Plummer because Ridley Scott announced in a quite strange way that he was going to replace Kevin Spacey from the forthcoming movie All the Money in the World with Christopher Plummer. And the thing that's strange about that is not that they're replacing an actor because that happens like all the time there are there are cases of movies in production where someone's not working out so they replace them happened in like there will be blood most famously uh with paul dano replacing someone who wasn't working so he ended up playing two characters they are going to completely replace him in a movie that comes out in four weeks time <laughs> <laughs> which uh is is not usual has to be said mm, it's a very late change to make um but plumber's a pro he can do he can do anything Mm. yeah and apparently he was the first choice anyway but they wanted to go with someone more famous and you have to wonder if Ridley Scott like in his gut was like thinking feels vindicated by this so much so that apparently he didn't tell the studio he was doing this until after he had told everyone else mm. which is a real sign that you're 79 years old and you don't give a fuck about what anyone else thinks mm. I always got that impression from Ridley Scott that even though I struggled to get on with a lot of his body of work but you do get the impression that He's just going to fucking do it. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. what I mean? He's not going to fanny around and, and, and wait to be asked. And, and I mean, yeah, it's a good move. I think that a lot of people are saying on the on the internet that this is a slippery slope and, you know, where's it going to lead to, like, you know, are we going to go and change, you know, anyone who's who's now problematic and going to replace them? Well, you're not, are you? It's just because this is so raw and so in the news now and this is the last possible point at which they could do it. Like, um, Louis C.K.'s uh, film that he made has been pulled from... The premiere has been yanked. It's called I Love You, Daddy, the, the film. Yeah. Which, um, by all accounts, is supposed to be dreadful. Um, so, uh, yeah, that just got yanked. It's cancelled its premiere. It's not getting released. Now, obviously, uh, Ridley Scott's film is, is a bit more invested in that. They can change it. So that that is a film that probably would have been delayed. 
they probably want to keep it out there if it's a Ridley Scott production for Oscar stuff. Um, so mm. yeah, this is why it's happening. It's not happening because it's going to be a blanket rule to anyone who, uh, any film that starred anyone that's uh, that's found themselves in somewhat of a pickle later in life is now going to be altered. That it's just because it's the timing and the way it's worked out. But hopefully it's a very strong message to say that we recognise now that this is absolutely and totally unacceptable and if anyone else is thinking that they can behave in that way, it's just not going to be stood for any longer. So, uh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we've got Christopher Plummer on speed dial now, motherfuckers, so (laughs) rein it in. Yeah, there was was a tweet which I I can't remember who sent it, but... I really liked their summing up, which was, I could really get used to this world of men suffering consequences, <laughs> which is, that does feel to be the, the difference because, you know, there's there's a million stories of people, of men in positions of power in the entertainment industry, but obviously the world in general, not suffering the repercussions for their terrible actions for, you know, decades. Not some In some cases, not until after their death, in the case of like Jimmy Savile, you know, the kind mm. of the, the most horrifying example. He may not even be the most horrifying example. He's just the one I could think of. But, yeah. you know, uh, the idea of it having an immediate effect and being able to see it have an effect on people's livelihoods and the bottom line, which in, in its own way is terrible. Like, the reason why this is happening is because studios say, okay, there's probably we're probably going to lose money if we don't do something, uh, mm. you know. It's a little bit like suddenly there's some sort of realisation happening because it's not just in the movie industry or the fashion industry or Mm. the UK parliament. Um, I think it's actually really quite pathetic that we've got to 2017 and people have only just started going, oh, wait a minute, no, there there should probably be consequences to all of this regardless of the power that people hold. And it's just a bit of a shame that it's... I don't, I don't know exactly what it's taken. Maybe it's the momentum of it, but for women and other people who, who are victims to feel empowered to come out and say something and, and feel like they have backing. Mm. Um, and, like, obviously so, some accusations are, quote-unquote, more innocent than others. But, I mean, I think that just goes to show the strength of of just how all of these things have created this culture that is just unacceptable. And so I, you know, I, for one, you know, I can definitely appreciate that feeling, you know, that that you were talking about, Matt, in terms of, you know, this is someone I, I admire, I look up to, I enjoy what they do and like, oh no, I've lost this. But the fact that you can then look past that and say, actually, the guy's a douche, he shouldn't have done that fuck him you know mm. I've, and that's that's where we need to get to uh it's a bit you could see it as a shame but i'm i'm just actually really pleased that we have come to this point and that there are really strong consequences now mm. and it's, it's it's almost like it's taken a hundred odd years but hollywood is finally having a moral conscience <laughs> <laughs> and mm. and and finally we're seeing like we had a, a news piece break today that uh Gail Godot, who is the uh, actress who plays Wonder Woman, has decided that she will not carry on with the the series, the DC Expanded Universe series of playing Wonder Woman, until Brett Ratner is removed from the, I think he's an executive producer, um, mm. which is kind of an amazing use of Gal Gadot's power one, um, which is can be easy now that they've had great success with Wonder Woman, but also... What, how on earth was she not tied down to more than one film? Mm. Like, well, whose I idea think, was that? I think that 
weirdly is sexism benefiting her because they probably thought, <laughs> well, this is probably not going to be a success. We don't need to get a a Robert Downey Jr. style five movie contract in place. You know, mm-hmm. we'll be able to. The film will do like two hundred million. It'll be fine, and we won't need to. It, it won't be. You know, she'll be replaceable, or we'll be able to get her for less money. But uh, that has has come around and kind of bit them on the arse in a major way in that respect. I was going to say it's good that like this is timed well. I don't know if it's a coincidence or not with the story that came out about Brett Ratner this week and Ellen Page, which uh, wasn't a mm. um, story of uh, like a sexual assault, but it was um, uh, like a story about. Uh, sexual harassment and bullying, which um, is every bit as insidious and har- mm. harmful and, and destructive as this, and and like is 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 way more excused uh, and and brushed over by most people, uh, well, a lot of people, um, and you know behavior like that is commonplace in in every place of work, regrettably, um, and something like that you're seeing now is like uh, as as consequences being shown for that, which is really great that. Um, this is a very painful period for everyone, uh, especially the victims and, and victims of sexual assault and, and abuse um, are coming through. But um, there is some kind of light at the end of the tunnel where, you know, at some point we're going to crawl through this horrible, painful pit of despair and come out shiny and new on the other side, hopefully. Mm. Absolutely. And I think if nothing else for everyone else, um, this is sort of, Uh, an educational experience and I just hope that if anyone ever witnesses here sees any sort of inappropriate behavior be it with their between friends workplace whatever that they call it out a lot Mm. of people they just don't they don't see the effect that some of the words they use the things they say the actions they take they don't see how it, it builds to this culture so I yeah I would just hope that we can all step back, say, hey, we're learning some things, and if we see bad stuff happening, we call it out. Whatever it is, call it out. Mm, agreed. Yeah, totally. Uh, there's no elegant segue onto the next story, but so we'll just, <laughs> just acknowledge that and then move on. There was, as there always is, there was big news about Star Wars because Star Wars, big Disney property now, they're constantly announcing things, new ways in which they are uh exploiting that ip at this point it seems uh but one of the more exciting announcements this week was that uh ryan johnson who people know from directing brick episodes of breaking bad uh looper the the brothers bloom a few episodes of terriers a a much missed show or for me a much missed show uh and who has directed the forthcoming the last jedi when it was announced that Colin Trevorrow was being kicked off of episode nine, there was some speculation that Ryan Johnson wouldn't take over, would take over, and they didn't. And there was a question of like, oh, why, why, why wouldn't they want to? And it was revealed this week the reason why is that he's directing three new Star Wars movies, so that's why he's not taking on, on episode nine. He's doing an entirely new Star Wars trilogy with new characters, new worlds, uh, and that is. A, it's very exciting because it means that clearly someone at Disney thinks that the Last Jedi is is pretty good <laughs> because they're putting a lot, they're investing a lot in him. But uh, also, it means that we're finally going to get Star Wars movies that have nothing to do with the Skywalker family, which would be nice because you know it's an infinitely huge universe and hmm. we've been following like the same handful of characters for forty years now. Mm. It's uh, just to correct you there, Ed. He's only directing okay. the first one. Oh, okay. he, he but he's, come up, with, he's come up with the story and overseeing okay. all three, which is nice because 
um, a very common um, reaction to the news was, oh, that's awesome. We love Ryan Johnson. He's great. It's still a white dude. You know what I mean? We need mm. to get some kind of diversity in voices there, but like, swear down. Ryan Coogler has dropped off Creed 2. It's going <laughs> to happen. Um, calling it now. It's very exciting news, but like you say, it's it's mainly exciting because we're going to move away from um, the established properties. A lot of the, the problems we have with the newer films and the newer things is um, kind of like fairly uh, ungracious fan service being paid by crowbarring things in uh, to the stories and narratives. They don't really need to be there other than you can say, oh, oh, do you remember him from that film? Mm. And I think a whole clean slate is is what it needs. I would have hate to have seen three more films uh, based around, even if it was the three new people that we've been introduced to in these new films, it would still be people connected to the fucking Skywalkers. And yeah, like there has got to be more than one family <laughs> in the entire <laughs> Star Wars world that's interesting um and yeah it's it sparks a lot of speculation um about what it's going to be about and a lot of people are saying oh is it going to be set during the old republic era is it going to be set i don't care just something new something new mm. will be great and um i for one welcome our new star wars overlords <laughs> yeah and again it's just it's just exciting because i remember when i was growing up and reading all of the star wars like expanded universe stuff it was always nice meeting like getting to see the further adventures of, of the characters from the movies because you know those were the characters that you fell in love with watching it but it it was especially fun when the sh- the series just kind of got weird mm. <laughs> and like we've talked about the the monks that you see briefly in return of the jedi who are just like electronic uh, robotic spider bodies with brains inside them and like it was just nice that a few, occasionally you just get writers who were told uh, you just need to set this in this area, but you can do pretty much what you want with it. Um, and being given the free reign of knowing they didn't really have to adhere to what the 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 main continuity or whatever. And the movies up to this point have been really hamstrung by the fact that either they're focusing on these characters we already know and expanding it a little bit, or filling in the blanks of previous um, chapters in the story or whatever. So, yeah, I'm very excited to see what can happen if they do go okay, Ryan Johnson, you've come up with this whole new story, new characters, let's let's see what you've got and see if there is uh, more juice in this universe than what people have been using so far. Mm. And it's interesting as well, the other, the other bit of supplementary news um, to this was that uh, Lucasfilm and Disney are making a live-action Star Wars TV show which mm. will debut on Disney's streaming service uh, in 2019. The uh, a live-action Star Wars TV show has been knocking around for a long time, but it's never really happened. But the fact that Disney are launching a streaming service and people have kind of wrinkled their noses up a bit and thought, "Well, hang on, I already own every DVD they've got." Mm. Um, there's, you know, and they have got a reasonably sized catalog. But is it going to be something I want to pay for on a month by month basis? Something like this might tempt people to subscribe. At the very least, I just want them to release that live action Star Wars series that was shot but no one's ever seen because it's just sat in a Lucasfilm vault somewhere there's like an 80 episode TV series that was filmed like 7 or 8 years ago and no one's ever seen it and that's one of those ones I just think it's probably terrible because otherwise it would have been released but yeah if they could just put that on a streaming service I'm sure it'd be just fascinating to pick over mm, and the holiday special oh yeah well that that exists in a, in one form or another on YouTube. People can check that out. Um, but with all, the all, all new CGI effects, like when they did the special, <laughs> special editions, really tart them up. 
or uh, Christopher Plummer in the place of Harvey <laughs> Corman. Not, not because Harvey Cor- not because Harvey Corman was bad, just because you know if you can replace someone with Christopher Plummer, go for well, it. I, I actually think that watching the Return of the Jedi, that um, Jabba the Hutt's <laughs> attitude towards women was quite problematic. So right. he's going to be played by Christopher Plummer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but operated by four men in a, in a Christopher Plummer suit. <laughs> oh god, that's a that's a really nightmarish thought. Yeah, that that that's what it would have been like if uh, they got Cronenberg on. Mm. Uh, if Which they, could if still they... happen now. It's on the cards. Yeah, yeah. After he's finished making, actually, what the hell is he doing nowadays? Operas, I guess. If he's finished directing operas, he can direct a Star Wars. Mm. Yeah, why not? Add it to the CV. Our main uh, topic of conversation this week is Dirty Dancing, which this year turned 30 years old, came out in 1987, uh, originally in the August. We're a little late on the anniversary because uh, this was an idea that Matt had for an episode uh, that, and obviously he didn't come back until September, uh, and then we were going to record it earlier and then the timing just didn't work out. But it's still 2017, so I think we're close enough. For it counts. Jazz. Yep. So, uh, so to kind of start us off talking about Dirty Dancing, which... Uh, I, we've all seen. Uh, where? When did uh, we first watch it? Let's start with you, Michaela. Um, I very first saw it sometime before the age of seven. I don't really recall exactly how old I was. Mm. Um, I don't think my mum let me watch it. But anyway, I watched it and I, I love the dancing and everything. Um, I didn't watch it again until I was like maybe 14 at a sleepover at a friend's and I was like holy shit what the hell (laughs) what the hell this is dark it wasn't the kind of fun dancing movie that I remembered it being Mm. Um, but yeah I watched it I was very very young Uh, how about you Matt when did you first uh, watch Dirty Dancing Mm, I don't remember the first time I just remember there was a time where I watched it as in mm. I watched it a lot so like right. there was two uh, taped off the tv videos in our collection that took some serious hammer um uh, from me the first one was the aforementioned return of the jedi and mm. the second one was dirty dancing I don't really know why I liked dirty dancing so much I mean I, I know now um <laughs> but like then I kind of like it didn't really fit with anything I was into um or kind of it didn't really cover any of my interests, but I just found it a very watchable film um, that I, I watched an awful lot. And it wasn't until I was kind of older when someone asked me, oh, yeah, have you seen Dirty Dancing? As if, like, it was some kind of, you know, dirty secret. And I was like, <laughs> dude, I've seen that film, like, 50 times. <laughs> like, um, you know, and I, you know, I kind of know it backwards and forwards. Um, so, like, when the opportunity came up to talk about it, I, I wasn't going to turn that down. But as in terms of uh, the very first time I saw it, and I don't think I've ever watched it with anyone else. Just watched it on my own in my house. This is what happens when you leave like kind of teenage boys in Suffolk on their on the, to their own devices. They watch Return of the Jedi and Dirty Dancing and deeply confusing double bills. <laughs> uh, I can remember very well the first time I watched it because I watched it with you, Michaela, in <clears throat> our house in two thousand and. Eight, I think, or 2009, it would have been the house that you, me, and Chris, our, our friend, lived in uh, after uni. Um, was this was this in the run up to my birthday party? Most likely, yes, because you did have an 80s themed birthday party. I did, where, yeah. Where I dressed up as Robert Smith but refused to shave my beard, so it didn't. Really, <laughs> it didn't really work. <laughs> and I was baby. You were, yeah. Um, yeah. It was a very, it was a very fun drunken night. 
uh, which I think mm-hmm. describes most of like the years at the eight from age eighteen to twenty five for me. But mm. um, and here's me watching it on my own. <laughs> <laughs> you guys in costume, Jesus. Yeah. Uh, but the things uh, I make you do, Ed. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that watch all of the Land Before Time movies. <laughs> Yeah, that I'm not existed, jealous of that at all. Yeah. That existed at oh, that time. You should we've, be. We've, we've not watched the most recent one, part 14, that debuted this mm. year. But uh, yeah, so we watched it and I'd never seen it before because I think in my head I got it mixed up with things like Flashdance, which mm. I didn't have a huge amount of interest in. So when I watched it, I think I, and this is probably, I had the same response to it that you did, Michaela, when you watched it at like 14, where you're watching thinking, mm. wait, this is, this movie's, like largely about abortion, <laughs> uh, which was not something that had filtered through to me. Like the things that have filtered through to me had been the songs, had been uh, Nobody Puts Baby in the Corner, had been The Lift, you know, there'd been images mm. from it, but not actually what the story of the movie was. So I, I remember watching it and being just uh, kind of floored by what the actual story of the movie about. And, and like you say, how dark it is compared to how ubiquitous its kind of cultural footprint uh has become and in that regard it's kind of in some regard in some some ways for the 80s what like saturday night fever was for the 70s where everyone thinks of it as like oh disco uh john travolta uh, strutting down the street and everything when if you watch it it's like oh this is like a working class drama and there's sexual assault and everything in it and it's yeah. actually really brutal <laughs> Mm. Yeah, I, I had the, I had the same response when I watched that. I was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> like, <laughs> when I used to work at the the theater, some guy hired the venue uh, for his birthday to screen a movie um, mm. for just like fifty of his friends, and he put on Saturday Night Fever, and they all got all dressed up in flares and big kind of handlebar moustaches and stuff, <laughs> and they all came out the end and they're like, "Fuck, dude, <laughs> that was grim. <laughs> that was really grim." <laughs> Yeah. So you kind of filter, you filter out the horribleness, and like you know, you remember the uh, the things like you say that are iconic, and and you see replicated everywhere else. But no one's kind of you know doing sketches based on borrowing two hundred and fifty dollars off your dad for a backstreet abortion. <laughs> yeah. But see, my theory, my theory about it is that someone wrote this very sweet, sickly sweet coming of age story about you know a girl discovering dancing and her sexuality um and someone some producer read it and just went nah let's get people grinding on the dance floor an abortion in there let's sex it up <laughs> well, so that's in- what i imagine happened it's interesting you should mention that because it, uh, yeah like you say it has been 30 years since it came out and there was a documentary on itv over here um, um, that kind of accompanied a screening of it like a few weeks ago and I watched it. And oh. um, the woman who wrote the screenplay, whose name is Eleanor Bergstein. Eleanor Bergstein. Ed, she, yeah. on, she only wrote a couple of things in her whole career. And this is one of them. And it was based um, very closely on her childhood experiences where she would go to like the Catskill Mountains and go to exclusive resorts mm. um, and would participate in dirty dancing contests and would get involved with the goings-on of the backstage staff <laughs> and all that. So a lot of it is genuinely um, kind of comes from real life. And uh, mm. in the documentary that was just on, um, they said quite the opposite, that the studio were like, dude, like we need more grinding. We need to lose this abortion stuff. And uh, she was like, nah, not happening. That this is like actually holds the story together. Me and Ed had this conversation earlier on WhatsApp that like if you remove the abortion subplot from um, from Dirty Dancing, the whole film just collapses in on itself, and it's just 
um, just some people dancing. Yeah, although the dancing, I, I, you know, it, it's good, it's fun. I mean, that's obviously what I recall most from being young and not having a clue what an abortion is. Um, but, you know, it it does have, you know, the, the feel good factor to it with all the dancing. So I wouldn't mm. I wouldn't discredit the the impact of the dancing on its own. No, mm. no it's just that it, it. It, like the abortion drives literally oh, yeah. everything that any of the characters do. Um, it's a very abortion heavy movie. Yeah. Yeah. But it is, it is like a hugely entertaining movie to watch. Like there's lots of fun performances. The two leads are very charismatic. It's just, it's, I think we're just so used to Hollywood trying to separate politics from pop art to a huge extent. So like political stuff, that's for serious Oscar winning movies. And ironically, this is an Oscar winning movie because it won best song, but Mm -hmm, it wasn't, it wasn't something they were pushing for best picture. Uh, and then like your popcorn hugely successful movies don't touch on politics at all so it's just very weird that you watch a movie like this which has those two elements of it that are very very central to it and and part of that i think is probably wrapped up with the the fact it's a work of real kind of baby boomer nostalgia for Mm. america pre-60s it very pointedly takes place in the summer of 1963 and they say you know there was this before kennedy got shot and even though people are talking about politics it's there's this general sense of America at a time of, of innocence, the era of Camelot and whatnot. I think that that part of it is that, you know, abortion was illegal then, but it was a thing that people knew happened. So it, it's mm. unsurprising that a film set during that period, it would it would crop up. Mm. It's interesting to kind of think about, like, why that film exists in the time that it did. Because, like, in the 70s, you see a lot of um, kind of nostalgia stuff like for instance, Happy Days or um, American Graffiti, which harks back to kind of the 50s. Mm. Whereas in the 80s, I, I'm, I still don't know what in 1986 there was this, I can't think of any other cultural artifacts around there that harked back to the 60s specifically and why why uh, was, was Dirty Dancing part of a kind of a general uh, nostalgia fest or was it just on its own in that respect? Well, you had the big chill, which was... Mm the early 80s and that was less it wasn't that it was set in the 60s but it it was all about people who had been radicals in the 60s and who or you can't nominally radicals growing up and looking back on their time period and and listening to all the music they listened to back then and that was that was a real kind of big revival for 60s music so i think dirty dancing kind of grows up uh uh, out of that you know that that interest in that 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 movie and that soundtrack really created this interest in the the 60s as a time period and I, I think you know in the same way that you know we're getting lots of comic book movies now because people who are executives used to read lots of comic books you know in in the 80s you're getting lots of writers and filmmakers who are people who had grown up in the 60s and they want to tell stories about their their past mm. So I think there's a bit of a cyclical thing going on there. Mm. It, yeah. It, do you think that this is the kind of film that would be made or could be made today? Because whilst I rewatched it last night, I tried to reduce the plot down to a kind of elevator pitch. Mm. And where I came unstuck was that my elevator pitch was this. A rogue dance instructor at an upmarket... <laughs> Butlins bangs teenagers. <laughs> yeah. Which is 
today, in in light of everything we've discussed in the current culture in Hollywood, seems problematic. Mm. Yeah, it's the one thing I have with it um, is is wait a minute. This is a seventeen year old, very sort of naive, innocent young woman, uh, and this guy, like, how old is he? Like, what? What's going on there? <laughs> like, it suddenly feels a lot less innocent yeah. um, than it's portrayed, especially yeah. considering that. Was it Havana Nights, mm-hmm. the the sequel, which you know came out twenty years later, or whatever? But uh, it's it's got Patrick Swayze playing Johnny Castle, but it's set before Dirty Dancing. Now, aside from the fact he looks, you know, two decades older, <laughs> it's just like, wait a minute. So he was in like Cuba teaching then, like, so he's he's obviously not a teenager himself, as far as I can tell. But yeah. I've never really been able to figure it out and not. Um, motivated enough to google it mm. well the when patrick swayze was cast he was tw- uh, 34 and mm. um jennifer gray was 26 yeah so it's a somewhat but how old difference. is johnny castle is uh, he, like he's the character supposed to be in his late 20s i think really yeah mm. Mm. yeah because like, i what i noticed yesterday when i watched it there's so many references to him like coming from the streets yeah. Um, and like being like, yeah, he said, they said, how did you get into dancing? He was like, I was just in a diner and some dude came in and said, do you want to learn how to teach dances? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> just like, this guy really hasn't, he's not, he's not got a CRB check. Um, mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, there are mistakes have been made and then here we are. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a very unusual um, and quite uncomfortable dynamic that they go for, but somehow they make it work. I mean, if Jennifer Grey was kind of more childlike, like, I never understood like her sister because her sister appears to kind of have the outlook of like a 12 year old, mm. but <laughs> looks about 10 years older than Jennifer Grey. But don't yeah. you think that the the general thing about it all is, you know, Johnny is learning from baby and, you know, like you say, the sister seems younger and everything like it's. It's somehow trying to say that this is like a young woman and all, and she may well be inexperienced and a bit naive or whatever, but she's quite mature or something. That's kind of how I always perceived it. Mm. And he does have that speech about how he gets used by the women who come in, um, mm. or the women who kind of like uh, um, pay for his dancing lessons and the, the, the husbands give them the money to spend and then you know he just sleeps with them and then they go on their way. Um, yeah. which kind of um, flips the sympathies a little bit. But again, lives in a shed um, <laughs> on an upmarket butlins and bangers teenagers. So, mm-hmm. yep. Yeah, that's pretty much it in a nutshell. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the idea of could this movie be made today, I think it could, but it would be... It's of a genre that's kind of like romance, but also sort of a musical, but not really. That's not really that fashionable. So if you were to make it, it would be like it'd be an indie movie which i guess it kind of was at the time because it only cost six million dollars and they didn't spend and that was very cheap for a movie made in those days but it probably wouldn't have had the opportunity to become a massive hit in the way that it did like it wouldn't have been put into hundreds and thousands of theaters and been able to earn like more than a hundred million dollars at a time when most movies didn't do that Mm. so neither of you have seen the 2017 version then no <laughs> we both like stro- we both toyed with the idea independently 
um, of watching it. Um, and then I thought, no, life's too short. Yeah, um, <laughs> I I was channel surfing a few weeks ago and I think it was on Channel 5 or something. So I sadly, not from the beginning, but I sadly have sat through um, at least half of it. <laughs> sadly. And? <laughs> and it's utter bollocks like I, w- I was so angry I was like why are you doing this just everything <laughs> about it the music that the the act not the characters but obviously but the acting mm. just everything and it's so long like so I mean I've seen the musical as well you know true fan and all mm. um and so there are some additional bits in the musical which kind of center around um race relations and everything like that and for whatever reason it was fine in the musical made sense didn't feel angry about it but like and they added all this stuff about the the relationship between baby's parents as well and it was just like why and why won't you end (laughs) just no so yeah it's it's awful yeah i think one of the reasons that dirty dancing stuck around is because it's 90 minutes um, mm. And it's a, um, should we say, economical screenplay um, that is s- slightly <laughs> overwrought in places mm. and slightly melodramatic. Yep. Plenty of room for montages. Exactly. Yep. Um, but, like, you know, they put good people in it. Um, they put Broadway legend Jerry Orbach in it. Um, Lumiere himself. Exactly. Um, he really illuminates every scene he's in. Uh, <laughs> Patrick Swayze, who is, sh- should we say, a limited actor, um, but mm. he has charisma and mm. a lot of presence and they kind of play on that a lot and physically he's a uh you know cuts quite a dynamic figure also mm. shirtless in a lot of scenes mm-hmm. which you know helps if uh, if that's your bag uh, or even if it doesn't i mean i watched it a lot um <laughs> and uh you know there's some good tunes in it i'll tell you one thing about dirty dancing which is a, is a fact that one of the greatest compliments that someone said about my wedding party was they mm. said they were late to it and they said they walked in, they felt like they wandered into the staff quarters in Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and I think they had less to do with the amount of dry humping that was going on and <laughs> just more to do that that Contours song was playing. Um, mm. So, you know, but like I always thought when I was growing up that that is what a party was. Do you know what I mean? There'd be yeah. people that'd turn up and they'd, they'd be dancing and someone would wear a cool pork pie hat and there'd be beers and it would be a little bit sweaty and cool. Um, but parties aren't like that, are they? But it sounds yeah. like yours are. Well, my art. I was going to say, like, I think they played um, that song as a final song for our sixth year formal. So, you know, uh, last year of high school um, and that it was kind of a bit bittersweet. But yeah, Ed, I don't remember my wedding reception. Did we play that? <laughs> uh, it it must have been on the 500 song playlist or whatever right. that, uh, that Aaron put together. To it. So it probably yeah. was there. I remember the um, new metal suite. That made up kind of a a good twenty minutes of it, where there were various uh, songs that everyone who was around like their late twenties knew intimately from their high school eras, and all of the kind of very nice people in their sixties and seventies just kind mm. of like nodded along to and like mm, yes, the young people. The young I people tell you the what wasn't there though, and what doesn't make a good party is the Black Eyed Peas version of "I've Had the Time of My Life," "Dirty Bit," whatever it's called, <laughs> and that's that's the song that finishes out um, the 2017 version. So I think that probably sums it up for you. Hmm. The Black Eyed Peas aren't going to improve anything. <laughs> no, no. The only part of the 2017 version was a clip that someone posted on 
Twitter, which I think is probably one of the funniest things I've ever seen, which is the scene when Johnny is kind of like driving away and he's, 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 it looks like he and baby are going to be separated. And then obviously they come together for the big dance at the end, Mm. but he's loading up his truck with all of his stuff. And then he's talking to baby and then he gets on a previously unseen motorcycle and rides off. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just really funny that he's he's apparently driving off into the sunset, but also he's just left all of his shit in the back yeah. of a flatbed truck that must belong to someone else. Yep. <laughs> that was, it's, uh, that, that's something yeah. that is, or to go back to um, I've Had the Time of My Life, that is something that even as a child watching this movie bothered me, that the film has like a soundtrack of 60s hits, and I'm not mm-hmm. going to be the kind of person that says, oh, it's set in the summer of 63, and that song actually came out in 1961. I'm not going to be that person. But there mm-hmm. are some 80s songs on the soundtrack. Oh, yeah. Now, I mm-hmm. accept that because they don't break the diegesis of the scene. The people in the scene can't hear them. We can hear them. Mm. They can't. Except at the end, right? Yeah. Johnny Castle comes in at the end, his big scene. He strides up on stage, breaks up the uh, Kellerman's uh, talent show bit at the end. Very rude, if you ask me. But he's got in his hand a little seven-inch vinyl, right? Gets the guy to pop it on, and then Jennifer... Was it Bill Medley and Jennifer Warns? Is that the people who sing that song? Yes. Yes, let's say it is. Um, uh, Congratulations on their Oscar win, by the way. And that song comes on, a song with clear 80s production values, and no (laughs) one bats an eyelid, but then the characters in the thing can hear it because it's playing on that record. And no one ever yeah. thinks, well, why is there slap bass in this? This is this is upsetting me. <laughs> but some of the dancers are wearing 80s wear as well. So, uh, John, my husband, has a theory that um, Johnny Castle is in fact a time traveller because obviously he's older in the prequel. That, yeah, anyway, so he's a time traveller and, yeah, that's how it works. I, See, I, now I'd go for that. Yeah. Now, now it's got me thinking if perhaps Dirty Dancing takes place in the same universe as Stephen King's Eleven Twenty Two Sixty Three, which is about a guy who travels back in time to prevent the assassination of Kennedy, but he gets there in like nineteen fifty nine, so he has to wait around for a few years. I just got mm-hmm. like, what if, what if Johnny Castle has had to travel back in time to the sixties, and in order to kind of make ends meet, becomes a dance instructor. He's just mm-hmm. kicking his heels until he has to get to Dallas in November of nineteen sixty three. Mm-hmm. So it, really? it works. Johnny Castle yeah. shot Kennedy. Oh, well, is that yeah, what we're saying? To, yes. To, to, yeah, because that's kind of the conclusion that the book comes to. <laughs> that <laughs> Kennedy had Kennedy had to die because uh, if he lived, things could have been worse. But yeah, so I think we have to assume that <laughs> Johnny Castle, at the very least, facilitated the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Mm. Well, yeah, it I all mean, makes sense now. Yeah, even if he didn't pull the trigger, can he explain his whereabouts? <laughs> he was with me all yeah. night. <laughs> yeah, he was with me at the time. He was paying for his friend's abortion. He, he was in <laughs> he was in Cuba, so we know he may have some sort of radical tendencies. Fuck, mm-hmm. this is all coming together. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm just waiting it for all like, Joe Pesci to like sum this up in like an 18 minute monologue, <laughs> which you know pulls in the mafia and Johnny Castle. From like a like a Cuban exile, um, and you know, kind of highly trained marksman in a pair of very highly wasted trousers, and Cuban heels, and oh, Cuban heels as well. Kevin Costner's taking off his glasses; his hands are shaking, and it's all kind of coming together. Mm. Everyone's sweaty. Uh, 
And you know, like, <laughs> do you remember that bit? And this is weird. There's actually like film and reality of like combined. There's a bit in the film JFK where Kevin Costner says the files on Kennedy are going to be released in and says a year, which I now know is 2017. And he says, I'm going to tell my son to stay physically fit so he can be alive when that happens. Um, and um, all he gets is this, that Johnny Castle <laughs> could possibly have been like a Cuban exile, trained uh, not only to do a mean mumba, but to shoot a moving target 150 feet. But there's, there are, they, they did release a lot of the files, but there are still some files that haven't mm. been released as far as I understand. And so I'm guessing the reason why we haven't had this massive expose of, oh my gosh, it was Johnny Castle, is because <laughs> it's in those redacted files. So we just have to wait a few more decades and then it, our, our theory will be proven. Yeah, if yeah. we haven't been bumped off and the all record of this uh, <laughs> like kind of disappears mysteriously in a boating accident. Mm. Yeah, because the, the theory is that the stuff that hasn't been released is because it deals with people who are still alive. And I'm just saying, Eleanor Bernstein, Bergstein is still alive. Mm. She Gen- Jennifer Grey's still alive. Um, yeah. And I found out, I mean, I, we mentioned this last week, but she's in Red Oaks and, and she's great in that. And, and like, so it's good to see her still working. But she uh, participated in and won uh, Dancing with the Stars, the American version of Strictly Come Dancing. I think that's fucking cheating. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That is, it is like, a bit. Like, like A... She's been in Dirty Dancing, so like she can dance, right? That's mm-hmm. a given. But she was chosen to be an actually professionally trained dancer. Mm. That, is, that is a ringer by any sense of the definition. She beat Brandy as well in the final. <laughs> I've really looked into this. You really have. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, I think that's cheating. That is cheating. Yeah, I think um, one of the things I noticed on this rewatching it this time is that she is, considering she is like a professionally trained dancer and she's from. Broadway royalty, uh, being Joel Grey's daughter, um, she's believably bad at the beginning mm. of the film as a dancer. Which I think, mm. whenever you you see someone who is very skilled at something, and then you say, "Okay, try and forget that you're amazing at this one thing you've trained for years to be good at," uh, it can sometimes just you think, "Ah, oh, you're holding back." But I found her to be kind of believably awkward uh, towards the start of the movie. Mm. Wait um, a minute, so she's a trained dancer? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I don't think I... So she must be good then, because I was just mm. like, man, she's a shit dancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're, they're, they're kind of... I don't know if it's like an apocryphal story or not, but apparently uh, they left in a lot of the real dancing blunders because Patrick Swayze really could dance. Mm. And whether or not Jennifer Grey was just like a little rusty or whatever, but like a lot of the bits of... Um, of Patrick Swayze getting really frustrated with her for doing stuff wrong or or pissing about are real bits from like their actual mm. shooting the film um, because they didn't quite get on that well they'd been in uh, Red Dawn before together um, mm. and uh, you know again you, you know, this film is talked about so much like you don't know what's true and what isn't but yeah apparently they kind of had a, a fractious relationship and yeah a lot of the the bits. Most notably, the bit where in the montage, uh, I believe the, the song "Hungry Eyes" is playing, um, where she's got his hand, her hand behind his head, and he runs his hand down her side. Mm. She would just her like cracking up and laughing because it's tickling her. They're all real, and him getting oh. pissed off. They're all genuine responses because you can tell. There's two times I noticed it last night where he just looked straight off camera. Uh, yeah. To someone, as if to say, seriously, she can't keep a straight face during this shit. Um, which is that's a nice little insight into into the dynamic, and they've got good chemistry, which uh, is borne out by that um, old Hollywood adage that 
if they've got good chemistry on screen, they hate each other off screen. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely got the sense, because I, I was reading about it, that their chemistry in their screen test was what got them to cast Swayze in the role, because for a long time they were thinking about casting Billy Zane in the lead role back when, back when he was in his 20s, which would have removed a lot of the stuff we previously mentioned about the uh, <laughs> awkwardness of their relationship, if mm. in fact he was... Uh, the younger of the two partners, but their chemistry in that screen test was just so explosive that they couldn't not cast Swayze in it. Uh, I think that, like you know, like you said, Matt, he's not the the most uh, wide ranging of of actors. You know, he's got a very he's got a few things he can do well. He can dance. He can kind of smolder. Uh, he can say, "Pain don't hurt." Um, <laughs> he can skydive. He can skydive. Mm. Uh, but uh, he, you know, he is he has a movie star quality to him. Like he he looks great on screen, and he can really hold the attention. And uh, you know, I was thinking, oh, Billy Zane probably would have been all right in that role. But I think that there's there's something to be said for the ineffable quality that you get from casting just people who w- work so brilliantly together on screen, and that's the sort of thing that can take a movie from you know the. 2017 remake where you have essentially the same characters and and the same story with a few changes uh, and the original which is that you know some people are amazing together on screen and some people aren't mm. it's interesting just saying that it made me realize that Swayze was really just like an old-fashioned movie star in someone who mm. could say his lines hit his mark dance a bit and sing a bit do you know what I mean he was like one of those guys that would have been a matinee idol back in the day yeah and he yeah. can and sing it, because he's oh, got yeah. at least one song on the soundtrack. Um, is it She's Like the Wind? She's Like the yeah. Wind, yeah. She is like the wind. She is like beneath my... Mm. Through like my the, trees. Yeah. Through my trees, is that what it is? I can't she's remember like, now. She's Like the Wind, changeable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. To, steal a, to steal an old Garth Marenghi joke, unreliable. <laughs> yeah, she's like a candle <laughs> in the wind. Unreliable. Yeah. Uh, also, um, this is just an aside, and just to, just to, just to kind of peek behind the curtain of my life. The song um, "Hungry Eyes" uh, is sung at my place of work whenever someone is chopping onions and you start to cry. <laughs> everyone sings "Onion Eyes." One look at the skies, I have onion eyes. So that happens. So if anything, kind of uh, uh, typifies the uh, cultural. Uh, currency that the Dirty Dancing has, it's that that is uh, kind of um, still living in the hearts and minds of many people. And eyes of staff <laughs> of, uh, of a bakery in Sheffield. Uh, so one of the aspects of the movie that I think was not necessarily, I guess I maybe noticed it the first time I watched it, but was really apparent this time, was how much of it is about class and to a certain extent race i mean it's kind of like jewish people and irish people not getting along which is not the most fraught of racial conflicts in the u.s but it's certainly a factor of the movie um Mm. i thought it was it was really interesting seeing like at one point um robbie hands baby a copy of the fountainhead (laughs) and says um some people count and some people don't and i was thinking oh i guess robbie grows up to be paul ryan because that's Mm. pretty much (laughs) That's pretty much his philosophy, and also he's fucking loves Ayn Rand. <laughs> Ayn Rand. Um, I thought it was really to go back to like the thing about like the politics of it. I think it is really interesting that even though it's it's a very broad movie and it's written very to to appeal to like the hugest audience, it is commenting a lot on the nature of class and the idea that there are you know there are people in American society who 
don't count in the eyes of people who have power. And like, it's it's interesting to think that in a movie that is something of a of a confection and something whose appeal is based on the fact that it's a hugely enjoyable movie, kind of has that central to its theme. And also, I guess, like Titanic has the same thing. Titanic is has the same dynamic and makes a lot of the same points, but. Uh, they bother me less in Dirty Dancing than in Titanic, but I don't know why. It's, it's interesting that you didn't necessarily think of those things on, on your earlier watches, though, because to me, to my eye, obviously watching not when I was seven, um, mm-hmm. but it's it's ev- like almost everything about it is is all about that. And, and Baby and her naivety or so seeming naivety or whatever... Mm. It's kind of more smacking of privilege. And whereas you have Johnny, who's all struggle and everything else. And like when baby's dad is looking down on him, it's not only because he thinks, you know, he's gotten Penny into trouble, as he puts it. But like, yeah, everything about it is kind of like you're the poor working guy and this is my precious baby and we're better than you. Like, I, I don't know, like I always... That was always really super, super, super evident for me. Mm. Uh, I was just going to make a comment about the Ayn Rand thing mm-hmm. um, because I didn't know who Ayn Rand was for 95% of the times that I've seen this film. And mm-hmm. I learned who she was and what she stood for between the last time I watched it and this time I saw it yesterday. And as soon as that happened in the film, I was like, What? <laughs> I never noticed that. I just thought she was, he was just giving him a book. Never understood the reference. And now, yes, now I think that Robbie, who is the yeah the guy who uh, who causes all this trouble, he's really the catalyst of the entire the, the entire plot. Um, is he's the, uh, the, worst the covenant human. of the movie? Yeah, he is. He's um, the stormtrooper who doesn't shoot the escape pod in, uh, <laughs> in <laughs> New Hope. Um, yeah, he's he's what happens, and yeah, he's he's rooted deeply in Randian philosophy, which is uh, deeply troubling. So he he's probably in the Trump administration right now. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's just it's just it's also so weird because that feels like a joke that someone would make if they were making a movie set in the eighties, but may like they're making it now because like Ayn Rand is more well known. It's it's such a weirdly specific reference to make in this movie. Then and I guess it I guess you're in the second Reagan term and trickle down economics is coming into like is coming into effect but having no benefits to anyone because it doesn't work um so i guess that kind of must have been part of the reason why that was dropped in there it's like oh this is where all this trouble comes from it's from people like robbie reading these books and deciding that we don't need social just we don't need a uh, social welfare programs um but it, yeah i just saw that and i was like oh this I don't remember there being a very pointed joke about the limits of Randian philosophy in Dirty Dancing, but it's there. Yeah, and I kind of always forgot like how much of a douchebag Neil is. Mm. <laughs> Such like, a douchebag. Because you forget because he dances with the mum at the end and he's kind of just on board uh, with this new kind of way of dancing. But throughout the film, he's just like he's one of the, the, the 80s great kind of like dicks. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just like when he's standing with baby and he's like saying, "Oh, you know, when you if you're with me, your parents will be happy, won't be worried at all." And he's just like playing for her. It's like, dude, leave her alone. <laughs> she says, "Read the room." She clearly wants nothing to do with you. And he has no right to be as smug as he is, really. Mm. So it's just hilarious again, like someone who thinks they deserve more than they really do. Mm. Just another um. mediocre white male. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, he's had everything given to him and now is probably stepping down from his job after three or four allegations of sexual assault. Yep. Is Dirty Dancing the woke the wokest movie ever made? Is that what we're saying? <laughs> I think it probably is, um, and it, it it comes from the director of uh, Three Men and a Little Lady, so oh. yeah, that's something. Yeah, it's, I think it's certainly something. Direct, he directed something else as well. That guy who directed this, um, what was it? Oh, Sister Act. Directed Sister oh. Act. So that's that's Amazing. his his kind of triumvirate. Um, we had Dirty Dancing, Sister Act, and and. Uh, um, uh, what's it called? Big, uh, I was going to say Big Trouble and Little Lady. Uh, that, that's <laughs> Three Men and a Little Lady. That's the one. He also won uh, an Oscar for a documentary called He Makes Me Feel Like Dancing, says Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. See, those was... three movies are like some of my most memorable favourite movies of growing up, so there you go. Yeah, I watched Sister Act a lot as a kid. Yeah. Uh, mm, yeah Sister Act's great. Like Sister Act 2 is... Mm. Everyone says Sister Act 2 is good, but it's not as terrible. Sister Act 1 is great. <laughs> Is oh, Sister Act Two the one with Lauren Hill in it? Yeah. Or am I? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Where she goes to teach at a school. Yeah. Yeah. She goes yeah. to teach at like an urban school, um, and there's a kind of uh, yeah. There's a the villain is James Coburn, and I seem to remember that at the end they lock him in a cupboard, and that's how they <laughs> that's deal right. with him. And I I always Caper. watch it. Yeah, exactly. I always watch it and think, man. James Coburn was amazing, and this must be one of his last film roles. And he got locked in a cupboard by like Kathy <laughs> Najimy. What a way to go! <laughs> it's like Orson Welles and the Bird's Eye Pea commercial all over again. What? <laughs> sorry, sorry, and I realise now that James Coburn like won an Oscar with one of his final performances, so he got the last laugh. Um, but yeah, That's Orson right, Welles. Uh, one of the last things he did was he did Transformers the movie. I think it was his last film. He voiced mm-hmm. uh, Unicron. Unicron. And then I think the actual last credit he had was like voicing a, a bird's eye pea commercial. Oh, dear. So the, the guy went from redefining the language of cinema to a bird's eye pea commercial. To redefining right. the lan- language of advertising. Mm, yeah. <laughs> There's always least that. I mean, everyone's heard it, but like the, the YouTube video of his outtakes of him refusing to say the lines in the commercial the way they want to and just saying yeah. I'm not I'm not saying it that's stupid these are peas <laughs> just it's worth seeking out it's pretty funny or the uh, the outtakes the outtakes of his uh, the Japanese wine commercial that he did the uh, adverts for where he's just getting drunker and more belligerent the longer it goes on <laughs> uh, it's just kind of like ah the French <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> he's it really does yeah it's amazing it's really really funny but also deeply sad because he was uh, an old man who'd been reduced to, to doing adverts for wine <laughs> because uh because when william randolph has destroyed his career <laughs> but funny in rest sleeping on like peter bogdanovich's sofa and it's... making uh making bird's eye pea commercials yeah uh it's not like uh the the, the best one of course is uh william shatner arguing about how to say sabotage <laughs> um it's like, you say sabotage, I say sabotage. He just gets really, gets really, really angry with the person who's giving this this one very minor note on how mm. to say one word in a scene. But, uh, yeah, basically, actors saying things is funny. That's what mm. we've learned this week. Have you guys got any other kind of broader points about Dirty Dancing that uh, you wanted to bring up? Just that it's such a brilliant movie. Mm. It's... It's, I don't know, it's just so sweet and fun, but also thoughtful and 
good and hopeful and idealistic and it's got some good music in it and like yeah it's just great mm. <laughs> that's my broad point it is great i mean there are tons of things about it which are really bad um but <laughs> overall it's just great like why does vivian go into the into robbie's room there's a sock on the ha door handle mm. like lots of things like that there are lots of problems with it but it is but if you if you pick those sorts of things apart then you're i think you're totally missing the point it is just such a a sweet and glorious movie mm. love it i i actually was prepared when i watched it again this time to be kind of watching more of it through the prism of cringing than I was, mm. but it really, there are so few bits, it doesn't take itself that seriously. There are, like I say, yeah. like melodramatic moments and bits that are a little bit uh, uh, soap opera-esque, but it ultimately gets away from, okay, it gets away with anything it wants to do just by virtue of being kind of very charming and Jennifer Grey yeah. being quite winsome and having great chemistry with um, Patrick Swayze, who doesn't wear a shirt for a lot, for a lot of the movie, <laughs> which does also explain um, part of the appeal. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah i think i think the charm of it is is a huge part of it and this time the the scene that i enjoyed the most was just them lip syncing along to that song oh um, love a boy yeah oh yeah that's it's definitely the best bit it's just a really nice playful thing it's just it, it feels like the her giggling during the montage it feels like a very human thing it's just like these two like silly kids playing around and just like saying, Hey, we like this song. Let's do a whole little routine that we worked out together. And, uh, I think that go that, that genuinely goes a long way for movies like this, which are fairly thin when it comes to kind of plot. Uh, it, it like, it is in many ways like a classic Hollywood movie. Cause there's a lot of classic Hollywood movies where the, the scripts are like merely functional and there maybe isn't that much going on to make them look visually very dynamic, but the charisma of the stars carries it along, you know, fine. And you can really, you really enjoy it just because you enjoy seeing these people interact with each other on screen. Mm. And I think that that is, that, that was my main takeaway from day dancing this time. It's like, man, I really miss Patrick Swayze being in movies, you know, obviously because he's, he's been dead 10 years, but, uh, or near enough. And, mm. but, but thinking, you know, that what a rare quality it is to be just like show up on screen and instantly just be that charismatic and fun to watch. Because mm. really with other actors, this film just wouldn't have worked. Like with Billy yeah. Zane, I mean, I, d I don't want to cast any aspersions on Mr. Zane's dancing abilities, mm -hmm. but I mean, he could be the greatest dancer of all time, but he, there's just something not right. It's very easy to say about a role that you can't see anyone else in because it's so iconic. Uh, and mm. so ingrained in your imagination but yeah i mean that that just wouldn't have worked yeah no i think one of the biggest problems with the two 2017 version is that there isn't really any chemistry at all between you know the 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 johnny and baby characters and that um and it's you know it's the sa it's the same characters but you know like you say it's that charisma the chemistry it's just not there it's just not there mm. at all but i don't know part of me wonders like did they even bother trying because they knew <laughs> maybe they knew like what they were trying what they were attempting to do was very very hard so they just gave up like that's how bad <laughs> it is like they're not even trying so yeah mm. clearly clearly you can't just 
you know, get a bloke and a lady, get them to dance together and say the same words. Like, it's not as easy as that. So, yeah, there's definitely something special about the, the mixture of those two. Mm, yeah, they kind of struck gold a little bit there. Um, yeah, the whole of, cast, really. Yeah, because uh, Jerry Orbach, uh, one of the great movie dads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's great in that. Um, he will lend yeah. you 250 quid for an abortion. Yeah. No, no questions asked. It is so easily. Just, you know, he says, is it illegal? And she says, no. And then he just hands that shit straight over. Mm, mm. That's one trusting dad. Mm. Also, there's just one thing that I found out whilst looking up at this. Um, there's a song on the soundtrack, which is a really big 80s tune. Um, and it plays in one of the montages called Yes. And it goes. We're gonna like, make love, and it feels so good. Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah, that um, one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I found out who sang that. Do you know who sings that song? No, no. It's a lady called Mary Clayton who also sang the female part from "Gimme Shelter," the one of the oh. most uh, recognizable and iconic rock vocals of all time. That's wow. her. She's um. Uh, if you ever see that movie Fifty Feet from Stardom, which is about mm. like backing singers who never get the limelight. Yeah, she's in that. And I, when I saw it last night, I was like, I really recognise that name. Who is that? And I looked it up and I was like, shit, man. That is, that is two ends of a CV, that. <laughs> well, yeah. I am learning things. There you go. It's a wonderful thing. Mm. So, yeah. like, if you, if you guys had to pick, like, your one absolute favourite scene from the movie, could you and what would it be? I'll let Matt go first while I think on it. Um, I mean, I would I'm throwing him, throwing him under the bus. Oh, cheers, man. Um, I mean, I, I would have gone for the lover boy scene because that is the one that really does bring home the mm. chemistry more. But I think uh, a scene that kind of does the same thing, where it also features the actors like goofing around a bit, is the scene on the log mm. where he's trying to teach her a balance. This kind of like Karate Kid style, like moving out of the the classroom to try and kind of hone in on some what well, is ultimately just holding a lady in the air. I'm not saying that's, I mean, I can't do it, but like, you know, I don't think you need to go on a log or on a river to do it. But yeah, that, that's a, that's a, a you know, kind of a nice scene. The, the Bruce Chanel song that plays over the top of that is, uh, is uh, really nice. Although it has been forever ruined by people who go, ooh, ah, <laughs> after the Hey Baby yeah. bit because of that dreadful 90s remix. Um, mm. But I, I think probably that one. Mm. Ed? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to, Loverboy would be mine, but I'm going to, I'm going to, Put that one aside. Um, I do. I really, really do love the scene where Baby first goes into the the kind of the staff quarters and the dancing is going on. Mm-hmm. Just because I think Jennifer Grey does a really, really good job of selling her that sense of like, oh my god, I had no idea that any of this was going on. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the naivete of it really does come through. But also like the first, her first dance with Johnny. I just, I just like how they're chemistry kind of like shines through and he's trying to kind of like coax her Mm. towards performing and you know and I like the there's like such a nice contrast between that and her unwillingly taking part in the magic show Mm. and uh, (laughs) where the the magician uh, is making kind of like that kind of like really awkward kind of sexual innuendo stuff where he's saying you know it'll only hurt for a minute, minute was it good for you and you're just kind of like saying, oh, please don't say that to a teenage girl. You're like in your 50s and you're a magician. Your life has been a complete failure. Please, And you're, hold, you're holding a, a bladed object. <laughs> you know what I mean? it's, yeah. It's uh, and I just, yeah, I just really like the, I love the contrast between that. And obviously in that whole scene, you also get, you know, I carried a watermelon, which is like such mm. a 
such a really nice example of something that can be that is it can be so bad of like someone saying something like awkward and regressing it where she is just kind of like yeah that was a very silly thing to say and to her, her like immediate reaction to it is played very it feels very human um and i think that's one of the, the things that struck me in this you know that the giggling during the montage um just their interaction with each other like a lot that came through in this viewing was just how many little flashes of humanity there are in the movie mm. that kind of put it ap- apart from what it is generally seen as as just kind of like a bit of 80s kitsch which it, mm. which it is you know there is yeah. a, there is a there is an element of that but it's nice when you're watching like oh yeah those are the moments why it's is probably why it sticks with people is because there's like these little recognizable things in it which explain why it was back when people bought videos and dvds why it was still one of the highest selling like movies in all of home video for decades Mm. what about you michaela what was your favorite scene (laughs) i was gonna say ed's chosen the whole movie then um Yeah, no, it's it's tricky, actually. I was, like, flicking through the movie in my head trying to think, oh, which stands out the most? And, like, the things that... Sta- the two, There are two, really. One's the montage where she's, like, getting more confident, you know, mm. she's dancing on her own as she crosses the bridge and everything. And I don't know, I just really like that. Also, and not probably... Well, yeah, definitely for the reasons that people might remember it and like it, but, like, their first bedroom scene, like, mm. that could have been done so wrong and it's you know not just a you know leaping on each other whatever there's the really cringy line um oh no wait I'm getting my head mixed up there but you know it's it's just like the whole thing how it comes together and it's paced really well and it's very central and it's like oh yay and lovely now they're you know it's like solidifying that whole chemistry between them and everything I don't know that one that one definitely sticks out on my head because it's it's a rather beautiful scene I think Mm. in the rest of a movie which is great and really memorable but that one it's just that quiet sensual scene when everything else is just much more raunchy and i don't know Mm. i've got a favorite like a moment like a brief moment is when she fluffs the lift in that dance that they have to go and do that she trains so hard for oh yeah just this kind of weird thumb dance to kind of cover it (laughs) because i'm still not sure even though i've seen the film a lot and i watched it again yesterday i'm still not entirely sure why that dance is so important because is it they do a dance at a rival hotel to get mm-hmm. the job at the Kellermans for next year or what? Like it's really important. I think and it's, they really blow I it. I think as it's well. if they don't do that dance, <laughs> then they won't get that same gig next year. I don't think it's for the Kellermans. I just I right. just think it's just so they can continue to get that particular gig. Ah, okay, I get it now. Well. No one was paying that much attention because, you know, there was a lot of mistakes in that. Yeah. You could audibly <laughs> hear him talking to her through it. Yeah. yeah. Also, just hey, a side, the side point, the, the, the first thing I did when I finished watching it um, was to look up and see if you could buy Kellerman's T-shirts. Because mm-hmm. they always wear, and you can, 12 quid on eBay. Way. God bless nice. the internet. I have a T-shirt that says, I carried a watermelon. <laughs> which I love. And everyone recognises it. You know, you get that that look of, of recognition and the smile because everyone knows it. Mm. You see, I'm a hipster. I'll go for the Kellermans. It's more of a deep cut. You know, if, if, if someone gets Kellermans, they'll really get it. And I'll be like, I bet you only watched the first two seasons of X-Files, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my... That's kind of my approach to any kind of like branded or geek reference t-shirt. It's like, 
I want to have one that some people will recognize, but most people won't because mm. I want to advertise that I like a thing, but I also don't want anyone to come and talk to me about it. Mm. <laughs> it's I a very delicate balancing act. Yeah. I have a t-shirt, which is the, um, the Space Lego logo, which is uh, the, like a planet with like a ring going around it and a spaceship. And mm-hmm. um, whilst I was traveling, like the people who mentioned it fell into two camps split 50-50 some guys who were just like, dude, I like your t-shirt, I like what you've done there. And the second was like, why have you got a flying dick on your shirt? <laughs> <laughs> if you look up that logo, it looks a bit like a cock. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, it does kind of look like that. I feel a bit of a tit now. <laughs> but you know, the guys who got it were like, yeah, that's cool. That's a reference to being a lonely child as in the 80s. <laughs> other people are like, dude, you got a dick on your shirt, man. What's, what's that about? There you go. You win some, so, you lose some. Oh, well, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so that's everyone's homework. So they've got to look up the Space Lego logo. Mm-hmm. Awesome Wells doing adverts. Yeah, all the further reading. Yeah. 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 Uh, we end this episode as we end all of our episodes with SRS Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we have enjoyed and that we think you might like as well. Michaela, what have you got to recommend for our listeners? Um, I have finished watching Mindhunter on Netflix and uh, it's it's just really compelling, really great watch. I really enjoyed it. Is that the, the David yeah. Fincher thing? Is mm. that who does that? I don't know. Like, I don't pay attention to these things. I just watch them. I enjoy them. Um, and then I go, Ed, who did that? And he tells me <laughs> and then he tells me all about it. Or I listen to this podcast and I learn things. But yeah, it's just very it's a very enjoyable watch. And there's some aspects um that kind of tie into my work not just because i'm not a forensic criminologist or anything but um Mm. there's some scenes in it where they're trying to translate their their newfound framework for you know understanding killers um and talking to cops and they're just like oh if we can't make people understand how will we ever make a difference uh and i work in science communication so i'm like yes exactly anyway yeah, that show's uh, very, very good. I think anyone who liked Zodiac, which David Fincher also directed, uh, will get a lot out of it. It's essentially Zodiac, the TV series, except they actually catch some criminals. Uh, so it's a little more satisfying than Zodiac in that regard. Mm. Uh, but yeah, that that's a that's a lot of fun. Uh, have you got anything to recommend for us, Matt? Yes. Uh, yesterday at the cinema, I saw Paddington 2, um, oh. which if you enjoyed the first Paddington... Um, and did. if you didn't, you are probably uh, either lying or dead, um, <laughs> because that is a hugely enjoyable film. Um, and when they made a sequel, I was like, ah, okay, right. And then uh, I went to see it, and it's absolutely um, um, amazing. And Hugh Grant and Brendan Gleeson are clearly having the time of their lives in that movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole thing is um, very good-natured, very funny, suitable for all ages, um and in cinemas now and it'll do uh, i think i saw today like it, it did like eight million quid in a day in wow. the uk which is nuts but yeah it's really really funny um there's some great sight gags in there um and yeah it has everything you liked about the first one including the bear um, and uh, <laughs> much much more cool uh, i'm gonna recommend the latest movie by todd haynes wonderstruck or uh, as I like to think of it, Wonderstruck! Because every time I see that title, I think of the ACDC song. <laughs> <laughs> and it, which could not be more inappropriate for the kind of movie it is, because it's a very gentle, lovely, 
uh, all ages movie, which takes place over two time periods, one of which is 1927 and is all about the this young deaf girl who goes from Hoboken, New, uh, New Jersey into New York City to kind of look for this silent movie star who she uh, is kind of infatuated with, played by Julianne Moore. And then the other half takes place in 1977 and is about a young boy from Gunflint, uh, Minnesota, who travels to New York City to search for his father in the wake of the, in the, the wake of the death of his mother. And uh, the two stories travel in parallel obviously they go to the same city so they go to some of the same locations and at a certain point it kind of like crosses over and it's just it's it's based on a book by brian selznick who also wrote the book that inspired the movie hugo so it has um a similar kind of whimsical kind of vaguely fable like tone to it which is why i think a lot of people have reacted very negatively to it i mean it's got very nice reviews across the board but there are some people who uh, i can understand not being on board with it because it takes a lot of leaps but uh, I found it to be very, very sweet, very moving. Uh, and the last 20 minutes made me cry an awful lot. So uh, that is uh, that is my recommendation. People should check out Wonderstruck and either be completely charmed by it or repulsed. Like <laughs> there's a, there seem to be only two responses to it. But uh, for me, it worked really, really well. And uh, yeah, it was just, it's nice seeing a new Todd Haynes movie, considering that he took a very long break between I'm Not There and Carol. And I was expecting there to be a similarly long break. So to have a new movie just two years later and to have it be really whimsical and charming is very nice. Mm. Wonderful. Thank you, Michaela, for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. Where can people find your your work? Um, yeah, so go visit oxfordsparks.ox.ac.uk. Um, in particular, the podcast, we've got an episode, Oxford Sparks Goes to the Movies. So if you ever wanted to know... Uh, where the science is wrong and right in movies. You can go check that out. But lots of other things, um, including the time we made some researchers go to a karaoke bar to sing about the mating (laughs) rituals of a fruit fly. So, yeah. (laughs) Fantastic. Uh, If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, then please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, all the usual places, write reviews and rate us, uh, recommend us to a friend. All these ways help us uh, grow our audience and introduces the show to people who will enjoy it hopefully uh you can also find us on facebook and twitter we are at srs underscore podcast we'll be back next week with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me and i guess goodbye from me 